getting in the loop podcast episode one what is a critical raw material and can we learn strategic materials management from historical examples with david peck hi i'm katie wellen and join me each week as i talk with experts around the globe about circular economy you'll find out what's being done to make it a reality and if it can really solve the problems it promises it's time for getting in the loop Thank you for tuning in to one of the first ever episodes of Getting in the Loop. I'm thrilled you have joined, and I have some exciting episodes lined up for you coming your way soon. Today on Getting in the Loop, we're talking with David Peck, who is an associate professor at Delft University at the Faculty of Architecture and Built Environment in the Netherlands. Dave is one of the original circular economy researchers at TU Delft, and has been a driving force behind many of the MOOCs and research projects that have been carried out there over the past five years. Today on the show, we're talking about a topic often linked to circular economy, critical materials. Dave explains what this term even means, why critical materials should be considered, and that it's not that we're simply running out of materials in the world. We also dive into what we can learn from the British response to material shortages in World War II, so without further ado, David Peck. Well, I'm really excited to have, should I call you D Pro Professor David Peck or Doctor P Professor Dr. David Peck? Oh, well, just, uh, just Dave. Just call me Dave. Just <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm in Holland here. Everything's very flat, so we don't need hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Dave Peck on the show today. And I think it's really fitting that we have... Dave on the show as one of the first guests, because if it wasn't for him, In the Loop probably would not exist. <laughs> I you would... did all the work. You did. I, I just I just came along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe you can shed some light on this topic of critical materials. Can you give us a brief overview of what this term means? It might it might help with starting what it doesn't mean because there's some popular perceptions because they rapidly get bundled up with a bunch of other words like scarce materials and uh, strategic materials and uh, technology materials. So there's a whole bunch of language all around it, but one of the things it, it shouldn't mean anyway is, is immediately running out so that we'll just suddenly go for these materials and then there are none, and, and there's nothing. Um, but that is, is, has been fairly widespread in the narrative, and I was even looking at some materials this morning in, online, and still, and especially the media, the general media, love a running out story. It's, a, it's extremely popular in the world, and especially in, in the UK at the moment, everything's gonna run out. Um, critical materials, not about running out. Um, and then, so what is it? And that's where it all gets a little bit more complex. But I, I often start when I explain, and this is where you have to do a little bit of imagination. So we sort of have a, a two-axis graph. Uh, and on the bottom line, uh, this would be a scale of economic importance. So if we didn't have it, how bad would the financial and economic hit be? And then uh, you go on this axis, and up here, you would have a scale of 
risk of supply insecurity. In other words, not getting that material when you would like to have it or in the quantities you would like to have it. That's generally how it's been done. That's the methodology that's been applied for well over 20 years now. And that's generally how we define criticality. Many people have done a lot of further work, and particularly colleagues from Yale, Tom Gradell and, and his team, and his, he's retired now, but his team still goes on doing great work out there. And they, they had a, a third axis. So if you imagine it, it's coming out in a third axis, this has got vertical, horizontal, and third axis. And this third axis coming out was environmental impact. The challenge with that, uh, well, the first thing is I like it because I think environmental impact is really important. But the challenge with it is the two-axis model is super complicated already. Uh, and putting the third axis on makes it even more complicated. So what do you then get? Well, you get a long list of materials. And this is where it gets complicated again, because the majority of the list of those materials are actually also elements of the periodic table of elements. So everybody will remember if they're not scientists already, they'll, they'll know from high school the periodic table of elements up in the chemistry lab. Getting on for nearly half, I'm talking about Europe now, uh, from the EU. So the EU has been doing this assessment. US government has been doing it. Japan, all sorts of countries around the world have been doing it. And about half of those elements, nearly half, not quite, but almost, uh, that we use in everyday life in all sorts of products, about half of them are now critical. Uh, and they've been getting more and more critical. They've done a number of assessments. I won't go through the whole list because it is quite a long list if you name all the elements. But once you, once you look at that list, what does it mean for society? Well, one of the problems is they... I, I, sometimes said they're invisible elements my materials scientist colleagues get really upset when i do that and chemists get upset because elements are not invisible but to society they're often invisible because they're embedded into products so you get weird materials like uh, neodymium and dysprosium and terbium and and all sorts of materials like that and you go sorry i don't know what they are and i don't know where they are and you go well actually you're using one now watching this podcast because they're embedded in your laptop computer or mobile phone or whatever you're looking at um so they're in all sorts of technologies and this is the key finishing point of this question if we don't have them in in the way that we need and want them we're going to have difficulty meeting the climate change goals that we need to meet especially with me living in holland you know so i'm, I'm below sea level here i kind of get a bit worried about this sea level rise because you know it doesn't work so well if the sea is here you know, and I'm trying to do the podcast. It's not going to work because so. you're below water. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't breathe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that these materials are deemed critical by different governing bodies, depending on their economic importance and their risk of supply disruption, and mm. potentially mm. on who's doing the assessment there's some environmental aspect as well. Yep. Okay. And and it really matters because for those people who are in love with their tech, and there are many, it may make that a lot more difficult. Uh, for people like me, I get seriously worried about how do we keep the lights on and generate non-fossil fuel renewable energies to try and keep this planet going. And a lot of these materials uh, are essential for these technologies so the answers 
to the big challenges of the 21st century lie with these materials. Fascinating. Mm. How new is this idea? Is this something that we're only facing now or have we faced mm. this in, in the past? Yeah, the, 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 well, the short answer is it is not new. And the long answer is the current situation we have is much newer. Let me explain. Humans have always faced challenges of resource constraint. And we can actually see uh, where this has happened in the past, whole civilizations collapsing. So it's not fully understood from, from ancient history, but certain civilizations, I think the Mayan or Aztecs, or I can't remember which one, but anyway, they, they faced a big problem with food production, I seem to recall. Other civilizations have faced problems with water or uh, other resources as well. All the other material, there was a material change in history, and then suddenly the materials had a random good, so they moved somewhere else so so not having what you want when you want it or not having it around you in the way you want it has been a human thing since the get-go since well anyway since we started using stone tools and whatever other tools we used um so that's quite old the in the the other the other axis of the model um the uh, economic importance well again since we've had economies and i would sort of say the more modern model of economy was since the uh, uh, the Renaissance in the sort of, uh, 17th century, um, 15, uh, 16th, 17th century. Then then really, since we've had those types of economies, we've regularly had challenges to, to resources and it's had an economic implication. So not being able to get to stuff was a problem. Uh, we'd also regularly go to war over it. That's something else that I've, I've written about in the past as well. Yeah. Um, so that's that's old, uh, and that that was seen particularly in the 20th century as well, which you know we can talk about. But the current this this two-axis model and this definition that I was talking about a critical part of is really a sort of 21st century thing. So the early part of this century, between sort of 1999 to 2006, this was beginning to form, and after about 2006 2007 we've got it fairly defined as we have it now so that's quite new and of course the materials that i'm talking about these strange name technology materials that's a late 20th early 21st century phenomena before though then they were just a, a chemistry lab scientific um, interest we were not using them a great deal technology has changed demand for these materials has changed so in that way, the whole topic right now is super new. In another way, materials and constraint is super old. Exactly. So it's kind of a, <laughs> it's a very interesting <laughs> position and it's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite challenging to, hmm. to, to get a hold of uh, because we've always been dealing with this, but now because of the different types of technology and sustainable energy technology, hmm. these types of things, they're relying on more and more materials you're saying and those are materials that we then have some some challenges facing us in the coming yeah. years yes and th and those challenges are not getting any easier they're getting harder one of the things i've been looking at and i know the european union's been looking at this because the un has developed these is the sustainable development goals so if anyone doesn't know them, get get onto your search engine and type in UN Sustainable Development Goals and you'll they'll pop straight up. And there's 17 goals. And then you sort of go through the list of things 
which in a way, because they're goals, they're also massive challenges for, for all of life on the planet in the 21st century. And many, many, many of them have a direct relationship with, with critical materials challenges. So, for example, they say they're, let's end conflict. Well, we know from human history, and it's still the case, you know, some people have got stuff and some people haven't, and therefore they go to war over it. So that's fairly, uh, unfortunately, very common. It's very common also in some of the critical materials. We've seen that happening in Africa and other parts of the world. Um, if you look at, um, as I mentioned already, climate, that's important. If we look at pollution and uh, effects on the ecology, it's massive. Uh, not only extracting and processing these materials, but also the use and the energy again that they consume. And also the amount, so it's the volumes, the volumes over time, that's really important. That's having a big effect on the planet. Um, uh, effect on life, both in water and on land, uh, is, is massive. Um, so you start going through all this sort of shopping list of what we should do on this planet in the coming uh, up to 2030, up to 2050 timelines, then, then these materials are essential. But if you like, I, I sometimes call it sort of Homer Simpson moment, you know, where he goes, <laughs> I'm going to do this. And then he goes, oh, and then he goes, no, I'm going to do that. Oh, so a good example again is, oh, well, what we can do is we can get ourselves off fossil fuels because what we can do is use renewable energy technologies. And then everybody's going, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. Let's let's generate all our power using solar and wind and all sorts of other technologies. Fantastic. And then you go, have you done the math on the material requirement? And then there's like, oh, my goodness, that's needing a colossal amount because we're actually shifting how we generate our power. And then you're like, oh, that, that, that's not adding up in the way I want it to. So there's the, the dull moment where it doesn't doesn't work out. Exactly. There was, a, there was that report that came out of the Netherlands, in fact, I think it was metabolic, um, and that was released yeah. at the climate meeting this past uh, de December. Yes, it was December, yeah. It was metabolic, operate, and Leiden University did a joint report. And TNO, the Dutch research agency, also did a report as well on a similar thing. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's been for quite a while a realization that that things are hard to add up in the way that we want. And, and by the way, one of the big drivers I didn't mention is global population. So we, you know, we, we're a 7 billion world and go towards a 10 billion world. And in that as well, thankfully, billions are being lifted out of poverty all over the world. But of course, when they live out, lift out of poverty, then before we know where they are, they're sitting here doing podcasts in their kitchens and talking to each other, which is fantastic, which I love, love that everyone can do that. But then we sort of talk about the global material demand to do all this stuff. So that's a really big challenge. Exactly. You've talked a little bit about the, in the past how we've been facing maybe not similar material material challenges, but we've faced material shortages before. And I know that yeah. you've carried out extensive investigation into the British response during World War II to material shortages. Could you tell us a little bit more about the research that you did in terms of yeah. what types of material shortages they were facing and and how did they respond to that? Yeah, uh, uh, I'll first of all tell a quick story of how I got to that. So yeah. how did I get from these technology materials today to talking about 
as it was, I had a focus on furniture in the Second World War. So how did that work? Well, what I said was, I'm, I'm, first of all, I was reading a lot of stuff, uh, and, and I, nobody's really coming up with robust approaches on how governments, companies, and society can really address this challenge of critical materials. It wasn't convincing. And the other big problem was, sorry, there's no big national case studies to look at to say, oh, well, if we go to this part of the world, if we go to this country here, you know, it's completely been solved because they did this strategy. So therefore we can benchmark off that and copy that. We've got nothing to go on. Um, and and so, so that, that, that sort of struck me as a bit of a problem. So then what I thought was, well, maybe history can show us something. So let's start clicking back through time. I thought, well, I'll start with the 20th century at the tail end of it and start going back. And, and I found lots of case studies, um, all sorts of interesting ones with all kinds of different materials and all sorts of different reasons. Normally, generally around political ideologies uh, like communism in, in the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc or uh, conflicts, so the Balkans conflicts or other wars in other parts of the world, uh, where there was severe resource constraint, it was on a national scale, and societies and governments and companies come up with solutions. Um, but I wanted it on a very big scale, because I'm thinking, well, I can't have it globally, question mark, but I could have it on quite a big scale, and I wanted it for a very long, prolonged period of time, and I wanted it to cover everything. And I wanted it to sort of address going towards 50% less. So 50% less materials, 50% less energy um, in a relatively short time scale. So that I set myself some quite tough challenges with that. Um, I think I knew from the get-go where I was going to end up, which is bad research, of course, but I tried to go through it sensibly. And I ended up in the Second World War. Um, and I ended up in Britain. Um, actually... I did have to make a judgment call because when I looked at the data, Nazi Germany was a much better case study. Oh, really? I was a bit, yeah, I was a bit, because their resource constraint got worse and worse and worse and worse, and they had to get more and more and more strategies to try and solve it. The problem for me was moral and ethical. So what did I find? Well, what I found was due to U-boats, campaign in the North Atlantic in particular, Britain suffered a very steep and quick decline in, in, in supply of resources, both fossil fuels, energy, oil in particular, um, and uh, materials from all over the world. And bear in mind, um, some people go, well, it was a long time ago, so where was Britain so globally dependent? Well, actually it was. One, it had always been a global trading nation. And two, it had an empire which it traded extensively with all over the world. So it got very used to um, trading openly and relying a lot on import um, as the Second World War came along. So I, I, I looked at that and um, they were not self-sufficient in any way. And getting towards self-sufficiency in many, many cases was impossible because those resources were just not available in any sensible quantities in Britain. Um, for example, oil. They didn't have oil. They didn't have uh, many other metals as well in, in any serious quantities and all sorts of other materials that they needed. Um, 
So they then developed a range of policies and strategies in order to deal with that. Shall I go through what they were? Yes, yeah, sure. It's it's super fascinating. I was just thinking with the parallels because I had never actually thought about the fact that they were this global empire yeah. and they 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 had had globalization and, and they were relying on different materials kind of like in our current situation you know this this massive network um yeah, yeah. empires are controversial and quite rightly so and there's still a debate going on about empire uh, but one thing they were were forerunners of globalized economies exactly in a diff in a totally different way in many ways but that, that it was there uh, to, well, for a start, what materials are we talking about? Iron, copper, aluminium, uh, nickel, chromium, um, zinc, and uh, tungsten was very important as well. And that was, that was a challenge. Um, what did they do? Well, they split it into three. Um, and, and they had uh, actions around product design, which was one of the things I really was interested in. Uh, they had actions around production. They had actions around the customers, the users of the materials. Uh, and, and basically the list's quite interesting because they sort of talked about, oh, use less material, make it lightweight, robust and long lasting, design for repair, uh, uh, avoid specialized, uh, uh, sorry, you'll use specified materials, but locally sourced where possible. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff which for a start sounds very modern, but then there are other things which weren't. So, um, you will be told what the design is. So only one designer will specify the design, which for product designers sounds a nightmare. And no ornamentation or decoration. So nothing fancy that's using materials. In terms of production, the government took over complete control. And this was termed at the time socialist design. So you can see why. Uh, production location was specified. The materials were allocated not just the type of materials, but the quantity of materials they would supply to you. Uh, you need a license to operate. Your labor was allocated. So you didn't even hire on the open market. You were told who you will get. And actually they were sent to you. You didn't even hire, they were sent to you. Energy supply was constrained and controlled. This is how much energy you will have, normally often coal, of course. Uh, and the volumes and timings were given to you and prices were fixed as well. And then for the customers, um, you could only get, you couldn't get furniture. I, was, I focused on furniture quite a bit. You couldn't get furniture that you wanted. You got furniture that you needed. Uh, in other words, if you were bombed out or you got married or you were having a baby, then you could have a reason why you needed some particular items of furniture. Well, you had to go through a right uh, performance in order to get some furniture. So for a start, you had to go to your local municipality and fill out some forms. Uh, and somebody could come and check. So they might come around your house and check. And you fill out the forms, and then you um, had to, uh, you applied in those forms to get coupons. Then when you got your coupons, you would go to a store, but the store didn't bother having anything on display. It just had a catalogue, and they would just tell you what they had anyway. So even in the catalogue, you might say, well, I like that one. They go, no, I've got that, got this, so you'll have that one. Yeah, but the prices were fixed, and they were fixed quite low, and the quality of the product was super good, and so they were built to last. They were often used. I was surprised because when I started, I thought it was all soft wood and cheap wood and veneers and stuff, and it wasn't. It was a lot of it was hard wood and really robust and well-made because the view was that we have to make stuff to last for a long time. Um, what I then 
looked through the data, it's, it's wonderful because it's all, it was all secret, but it's all available openly online because it's so long ago. Uh, so you'll see all these secret cabinet minutes and stuff like this. But what they did was they were able to cope with more than 50% less, in some cases 60-70% less material, less energy. Some of these strategies sound familiar to those that we keep talking about in terms of circular economy, you know, use less material, design for reuse. Yeah. Yeah, that was something I did in my PhD. I sort of put the circular economy strategies down one column and then these strategies down the other. And you can't put them next to you. You're so distant in time and situation. But in terms of looking at them, it really struck me like, my goodness, this is what we're talking about a lot of the time. Um, so, so that really got me thinking but that I show it as a case and say, this is what they did. So if we're sitting and as we are, Dutch government policy says by 2030, we will halve primary material use. We will halve energy use. We will halve our CO2 in order to meet our 2050 climate goals. Um, I'm saying, OK, well, I can show you how in, in the case of the Second World War, they did all this in about six years. Wow. So they went in 1936 when they realised this Hitler guy is going to end badly. And then in by 43, they'd got the policy in place. So there's about a six-year run, half of which was during wartime. Um, but, you know, then it would give us, well, we could do this in the 10 years up to 2030. Um, so then I say, well, I can show you how it can be done. And then I show this case of what Britain did in the Second World War, and everybody turns around and goes, are you crazy? That's never going to work. That's stupid. How the, what, have one designer for the entire Europe's furniture, one range of furniture. That's all you've got. Some would argue perhaps some big, large companies do that already. But now a very limited range and, and, and limited focus uh, with just certain things, really, really restricted and controlled. Everybody has to have coupons and rationing like, Dave, this is not the Second World War. This is crazy. And I go, okay, so now we're having a debate about what you don't like in this case study. Exactly. Because you sit there and you pick it all to pieces and you go, actually, 80% of it I don't like. And I go, well, you're not going to get to half. Then. So yeah. what do what do we want? If you everything you take out and say, I'm not going to do that, give me a solution to fix it, an alternative. And that's when the conversation gets really difficult because it's like, yeah, I, I don't know, but we can't do that. And I go, okay, but we need to keep talking. And I think that's the solution. If we keep having conversations, if we have mechanisms by which conversations are promoted, and I know you've been really interested in this in your work as well, uh, then discussion will lead to new thinking. And I don't know what that new thinking is because it seems to me very challenging getting to half is really difficult um as anyone knows in the new year diets and uh, whatever else that everybody's doing getting to half is tricky well that's why people hire hire tr personal trainers or accountability groups or things like that so that they can have some sort of outside yeah, exactly. influencers helping them so and that's kind of what i'm hearing in terms of the british government in the in the wartime yeah. shortage uh, material shortage you know having this sort of top down approach which yeah i i hear what you're saying if yeah. if we if we say no to that then we need to start thinking about some other approaches and that leads us to have a, a conversation but yeah. what do you yeah. what is your feeling on, yeah. on 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 that 
Well, one of the conversations that's beginning to start now, and it's been pushed by the European Union, and it's being pushed by some governments, like in Sweden, like in, in, in the Netherlands, and other countries all over Europe, is, oh, well, we can do this circular economy idea. So this circular economy idea will solve this critical materials problem, right? And I'm going, uh, I think we need to have more conversations. In theory, yes, I'm in. I've always been enthusiastic about sustainability and circular economy. That's my thing. But I'm still working through this criticality challenge versus some of the more... um, obvious and direct strategies in terms of 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 circular economy and sustainable approaches um they the problem is sustainable approaches circular economy was not designed for the weirdness of critical materials and a lot of the strategies don't help if if anything some of them make it worse could you expand on that with an example well, yeah, I'll give you a direct example. So sort of sustainable design guidelines with eco-design guidelines would say use less material. And of course, that's always infinitely sensible. You therefore use less material per se. You Therefore, you're using less energy. Therefore, the product will be lighter, possibly, again, which uses less energy and so on and so forth. The... The addition of critical materials in a lot of materials uh, has been likened to adding salt and pepper. So then, or spices in food. And then we're saying, make super dishes, but with no salt and pepper and no spices. And it's like, actually, it doesn't work. They're not very nice anymore. And in terms of materials, in terms of products, you then make them heavier, more susceptible to corrosion, uh, less robust, um fail quicker and you sit there and go these are all the things that you said you really didn't want to do as an environmental design you wanted them strong and robust and corrosion resistant and long lasting and really good well robust design products and you go no but you need the critical materials for that the other one is in terms of oh let's make it solar and let's put batteries in it let's make it electric and I go, right, you've just given me a shopping list of things where I use more critical materials. But you said use fewer materials. So again, that's the, do you remember the Homer Simpson moment? That's another Homer Simpson moment. It's like, yeah, we can do that. No, oh, hold on, these rules don't work. The rule, I, I don't want to tear the rules up because they're, they're really well thought through and they work for most materials. But critical materials are a spoiler. And therefore they need a lot more understanding to produce the exceptions to the rule which then means we can do what we need to do so what kind of advice would you give to yeah if you're talking to designers and designers are listening or your or managers are listening thinking okay what do i even do because if i do one thing then there's the other side that's just saying no you you shouldn't be doing that is how do we go about doing any anything you know yeah we seem frozen what do we do it's so complicated so difficult well we i guess we would say this when we from universities well knowledge is the key so if we understand more we can then find solutions so the first thing in knowledge uh, is knowledge transmission which we in an old-fashioned way call education well what sort of things do we do in education well we do lovely stuff like um, free online courses 
uh, these massive open online courses. And I know your university and my university are joined together recently with other partners and, and, and done one recently. And there's many, many more besides. So, so have a look out there online. You'll find all sorts of uh, super courses available. Um, there's a load of published materials for those who are into, more into the research side of things where, where you can explore and find out more. The other one I really like is, is education in classroom or in groups or in workshops where we're using tools um, which are more fun as well, like serious gaming. So I think that works really, really well. And I've done a lot of that. And, and help work with you as well, developing that sort of stuff and, and, and bringing it to life. Because one of the things about that, I keep saying, engendering conversation based on the complexity of the facts, uh, not uh, fake, not conversations based on fake news around <laughs> what is a critical material or not, but around facts. Right. The facts are, again, um, sometimes contradictory and difficult to handle. But, you know, people, um, people are smart. I mean, you can give them a whole bunch of complicated, wicked challenges and, you know, just let them go and they'll come up. Well, if we, uh, this is complicated, but if we do that and do that and do that, you know, we're good at playing chess. Uh, that's got um, millions of permutations on it. We, it's the same with this. You know, we can find solutions. We can be very elegant in the way we do it. So I'm, I'm really super optimistic that we can find solutions. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but one of the things that I uh, do with all of my interview guests is to ask them about creating their own event for their own In The Loop game. So for the listeners who aren't familiar with In The Loop, uh, in the game there are different events, and they're one of the most memorable parts of the game for those who have played. They change the market conditions, and they're inspired by real-world happenings. So Dave, you've used In The Loop quite a bit. And I'm sure you have tons of events that you you have in mind, but if you could think of one event that you would add. I can. I'm laughing because, uh, you know, I like to set the mobile phone alarm for the events, the timer on the events. And so, so it's like real time sped up and because you set, set it for every five minutes or so. And every time the game's being played, and it's five minutes and the event alarm goes off. Everybody goes, no, that was never five minutes, was it? You know, so nobody believes that time is because is, it speeds up when you're playing the game because it's such fun. Um, so I love the events. Yes, um, I could have, I thought about this. I, I could have some crazy stuff, like there'd be a new global trade war over metals. Okay. I mean, who, who would think that would happen? Uh, or you could have uh, a member state of the European Union leaving the European Union without a deal. So I thought, no, that's really stretching it too far because those sorts of scenarios would never happen in the world. That would just be too crazy. So, um, <laughs> um, and then uh, there is a new EU European Union regulation coming into force on gold, tantalum, tungsten and tin, which bans the trade of those four materials from conflict, post-conflict, or regions of human rights abuse. So that's coming into force on January the 1st, 2021. And I thought there could be a card on an event card on that. Yes, I think that would be brilliant. And I thought of another one um, about how Europe goes super circular. So actually all the circular economy plans they've got actually really take off in, in the countries around Europe. And current critical materials production and supply chains can't adjust fast enough to the changes 
and supply and demand. Oh. And that, lead, that leads to problems. So it's actually a, there's an optimistic twist in that, that we go circular faster, but actually that, that in turn creates a materials challenge. That is quite interesting to think about. I will uh, I will consider these for future future versions of of the game. I'm yeah. sure we'll discuss them. <laughs> I'm sure we will. We'll work through them. So thank you so much, Dave. And where can listeners go to learn more about you and some of the topics that we discussed? Yeah, my LinkedIn profile. So David Peck. If you you go on there and you find me from TU Delft in Holland, then have a look on there. And I think I've got lots of links on there to different things. Um, and literature, I put them all up on Google Scholar, so the links are all there. And we have a we have a really on uh, the TU Delft Circular Built Environment Hub. We have a nice link on there as well, so have a look at that. And that's all for today's episode of Getting in the Loop. Thanks for listening, and thank you to David Peck for joining me. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at gettingintheloopodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our mailing list to have new episodes delivered to your inbox every Monday. See you soon.